0: This is an art attack. This is an art attack. This is art attack.
1: There was a notable death last week. Carl Andre passed away. If anybody knows who Carl Andre is, it's because he uh, killed his wife and got away with it. Acquitted, I believe, of the murder of his wife. He was considered sort of the OJ of the art world. Uh, but he was also the pioneer, really, probably the most famous figure associated with minimalist sculpture. And uh, if you've ever been in like a museum, a modern art gallery, you'll know a certain kind of Carl Andre piece. You go into a room and it's 24 bricks on the ground, or you'll find a bunch of lead squares on the ground, or some bales of hay sort of arranged, like the sculpture. Sculpture work was purposely not pretty, but it was all about the way it was laid out and its interaction with the environment and turning the space itself into sculpture. Uh, Anyway, yeah, I I mentioned that he killed his wife and got away with it. Uh, His wife... Another artist named Anna Mandietta mysteriously fell from their, you know, 24th floor apartment window. And, you know, the neighbors said they heard her scream and yell, no, don't do it or something like that before. And then the, the
2: cops... And, and his defense in court was like, oh, yeah, she was telling me not to make another piece of art that's just like a sphere on a stand or something. Shows how little you know he was more about like blocks in a room. <laughs> so like, even like, more boring. Like brick
1: and you know just just the purity of it you know and yeah they the cops got there and he had scratches over his face and uh
2: how the hell did he get off
1: you know there's a whole book called naked at the window and in fact there was a podcast series the title of which escapes me but if you search carl andre podcast you can listen to it and it sort of lays it out i mean his lawyers were able to finagle it such that he didn't have to have a jury trial it was just a, a judge trial and the judge determined that there was reasonable doubt um but nevertheless he never quite shook the uh, obvious fact that he was guilty.
2: Now you're bringing all this up I believe because before we turned the mics on we were getting into one of our kind of heated r- debates about contemporary art. Yeah, I don't know, every so often. The issue that divides we, us like no other. Yeah, I mean I I think that uh there're not that many sort of core philosophical differences between myself and Will, but one of them uh has to do with you know tends to revolve around Andy Warhol or at least feature him somewhat prominently and yeah tends to involve this type of minimalist postmodern art that I, I generally think is bullshit. And you know, is the hill Will wants to die on? And in this case, for a guy who is yeah, very yeah. clearly, you know, an upstanding gentleman.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously at a disadvantage in this particular case because Carl Andre is not necessarily a hill I want to die on for either moral or aesthetic reasons.
2: Yeah. By the way, if you'd been his lawyer, you know, you're not putting a very good case for it here already. <laughs> if you'd been his lawyer, I'm not sure he would have gotten off. The best case I would make for Carl Andre as an artist is
1: I kind of get a kick out of it. Like if I if I go into the Tate and I see the 24 bricks on the Ground with nothing else in the room, I think, ha! You know, that's showmanship. That's what I think.
2: (laughs) Uh, Which is not a great case to That is decidedly not what I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're like a Daily Mail writer from 40 years ago. Like, why is the bloody Tate paying a million bloody quid for these bricks? I can get you some bloody bricks down at the shop.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. To me, it's just like, and by the way, uh, as you can all probably hear, uh, I do have a, a cold. I had one when I got back from Britain last week. And then I uh, had a busy weekend, which we might talk about on the uh, other episode this week. But uh, I guess I kind of uh, messed up my voice again. Hopefully, I don't sound too bad. But no, I mean this—you uh, often make a case for this type of thing, and I just—I th- look at something like that, and to me, this kind of postmodern art is just uh, what happens when you know we live in a culture where you know pure commodity fetishism is sort of a you know a hegemonic thing, and we end up such that you know these artists who basically just run these little like hipster fiefdoms in really niche parts of the art world. Every so often, one of them gets thrown from obscurity and people are like, oh my God, yeah, this uh, this stack of bricks is brilliant. 1.7 million pounds at Harrods or something. And I don't know, it's hard for me to see that as anything other than, you know, something that's had the same abstract value that, you know, we graft onto particular commodities or particular clothing brands or something well beyond whatever, you know, the quality of materials that have gone into them, the quality of craftsmanship, whatever, the use value, anything like that. It just feels like a kind of arbitrary abstract value that's been uh, grafted on. And I feel like I have trouble getting on board with that.
1: Well, I mean, I would have to take it on a case by case basis, and I would also have to consider the sort of cultural context in which these provocations emerged and make no mistake the carl andre art is a provocation like maybe 50 or 60 years ago whenever he was doing it to have this in the history of sculpture at that moment and say this is a sculpture prove to me that this is not a sculpture this manipulation of space is a sculpture. That's a more powerful gesture then than it is now, now that it's been like grandfathered into uh, the canon, you know? You see,
2: I would just reply to that, uh, okay, uh, go back to sculpture 2,500 years ago and people had already, were they were already doing a better job than you're doing now. What do you
1: think of the abstract expressionists like Pollock? Do you, have, do you have much truck for that?
2: I haven't spent enough time with them to really give you an educated opinion, although you'll notice the painting that's sitting behind you right now as we're speaking, which was by a fellow called Gordon Teske who's a a family friend and I actually do rather like that I actually I think I have more time for abstract expressionism in fact I saw some wonderful German expressionists when I was in uh, London recently not the painters obviously their work but I think you can do remarkable things with abstract form actually and with painting you know you have color you have texture you have a lot going on you have balance you have technique yeah I don't know so yeah I actually do feel like I have more time for that which uh which Andre
1: my friend my (laughs) hero my role model Carl Andre uh, also has in his way there is there's balance there is texture to those bricks in the middle of the room yeah the most and that's
2: why he's innocent the most rudimentary kind at all if I was to pile up some Lego in front of you right now and be like look there's balance there's texture and yet, and yet somehow on. and
1: yet somehow you're not a celebrated artist and he is and yeah it's
2: because incredible yeah because commodity fetishism is arbitrary and useless and I, we,
1: the punchline to the Carl Andre <laughs> thing which I think is so funny I, I read this in the book Nate it at the window uh when he was first brought in by the cops he was in prison and they were trying to negotiate his bail uh andre said something like get in touch with my art dealer maybe we can put up some art as collateral and the art dealer did get in touch because of course some of this carl andre art was you know he was at the peak of his fame at that time some of it was selling for a lot of money and the da was thinking well do i do i take 24 bricks in my office (laughs) and so they they didn't they didn't accept the art as collateral if it was picasso you probably would but with (laughs) carl andre you wouldn't and i think it's amusing and you'll just find it abhorrent but i find it amusing and like kind of a provocative question about okay so the bricks themselves are not art and for the thing to have value you actually have to have the actual carl andre come in and he himself has to arrange them in a room and the act of him doing that because And this is an extreme example, but because art is all about the context... There was that movie that came out a couple of years ago about the Beatles music, like, what if there was an alternate timeline where the Beatles never existed and this guy went back in I, time? I didn't and cre- see it. And cre- that, you that know the one I'm talking about. Like, yeah. well, The premise is ridiculous, because if Sgt. Pepper didn't exist, and then you just came right at this moment, and said, 21st said here's an album called Sgt. Pepper, it's influenced by British musical, and right, it's right. it's got a little bit of 60s pop and a little <sighs> bit of this and that, and people would say, what the fuck is this? This that's is right. completely out of time. And so, a much more extreme example that's much harder to defend, Carl laundry. The example you just gave me
2: <laughs> is as ridiculous as medieval peasants thinking that the king can cure scrofula by touching them. That's what it sounds like to me. It's it's but, but at the end of the day. An, it's an all... abstract mysticism, it's and it's as silly as like the medieval equivalent. Maybe exchange value <laughs> and the thing that we call the aura in
1: art are somewhere somewhere on the same spectrum, you know? <laughs> when I was living in DC for a summer, a friend and I used to go to like the galleries and the museums and Love of those in dc i hear Uh, for free in fact and and one point she said to me uh do you like museums or galleries better and i said uh well i like them both but if i had to choose i I know
2: which one you're gonna say i'd I'd say say the opposite i'd say
1: i'd say uh galleries art galleries museums for me and she says i think this is a very fundamental difference between us as people and i said oh how so and she said because i'm interested in the real i'm interested in like the plymouth rock and all the lore and and the history associated with the plymouth rock whereas the art is it's an illusion basically it's something that we project onto it well Well, actually i don't
2: i don't agree with with that
1: right i think it's the exact opposite actually Mm -hmm. like i love the plymouth rock too yeah but at the end of the day the plymouth rock is just a rock whereas uh you know picasso was there painting that picasso um and carl andre was there laying those
2: Okay, I'll stop bringing him up. But you, but you know, you know what I mean you, about you how you would like, be the worst lawyer in existence, just constantly bringing up like the weakest piece of evidence in support of your case, Your
1: Honor. He listen, Your Honor. He obviously killed his wife, but what if I told you he's a very successful artist? <laughs>
2: that banana peel was placed your honor what if i told you (laughs) what if i
1: told you your honor that he was at the right place at the right time (laughs) with the right idea
2: yeah no so i don't i don't really agree with that and i mean it's too bad you know your friend isn't here to defend herself so i feel like maybe you're not putting you know we've established you're not obviously stacked
1: the deck in my
2: favor in this yeah you're not ventriloquizing her case very well
1: perhaps i didn't argue my case
2: quite as brilliantly as i am and also i'm not sure it even works because plymouth rock's not in a museum there's not like you don't go and like the no, 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 Rock. no.
1: They, they have at, at, really at one of the ga- at one of the museums, one of the Smithsonian's. There is part at least part of the Plymouth Rock. Oh, I don't, re- I don't like
2: that. Well, we. So you and I agree there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, usually side. I mean, it depends on the museum or gallery, obviously. But it, in in general, in the abstract, I would be on the museum side of the debate, and you would be on the gallery side. Having said that, I definitely don't have the view that art is. I mean, art is just an illusion. Art is as much a part of human reality as what in that formulation was being called reality. Reality. It's just a different facet of it. And, you know, it's an, it's an expressive facet of it that I think can play a role in elucidating reality. But uh, I, I still prefer museums in most cases. We call it art. Oh, oh we call it art. Yeah,
3: we call it art. Oh, oh, we call it art.
1: Well, in the break there, Luke poured me a lovely uh, cup of tea. When you were talking about your London trip, you were telling me that whenever you're in London, you find that the city has sort of commodified its identity in a lot of ways. And big cities are often like this, but they turn themselves into like fetish objects for tourists. You That's know? right.
2: And it's especially, I don't know, noticeable in the case of certain European cities, because unlike North American cities, many of them are quite ancient. And so when something ancient becomes a museum to itself, I think that that is more significant, or when it begins to take on that quality at least, than something in the quote unquote new world where, you know, the newness was part of the identity all along. I feel like, uh, you know, there's a different character to that, even if the same fundamental process is going on.
1: And yet in in the UK, in many European cities, they sort of fetishize America, which is new and shiny and is the leader of the free world and has a media apparatus unrivaled in the history of the world. And I was thinking about this because, uh, I'm sorry, there have been so many Monty Python references on the podcast lately. Uh, I know there are certain cultural touchstones
2: that we keep coming back to over and over again, and maybe certain listeners will get exasperated, but I don't care. Monty Python is very important to Will. It's very important to me too, but it's important to will in a way that I don't know certain obscure socialist writers are important to me.
1: but I was picking Michael Palin's Diaries off the shelf again, which I'm perpetually doing <laughs> you know whenever I uh, need something to fall asleep to, I'll often pick his three volume set of diaries off the shelf and I was flipping through the 1970s and I came upon the section when he's talking about hosting Saturday Night Live for the first time. You know, he hosted at the height of the Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd era. There's a passage where he says, you know, woke up this morning at my hotel in New York. Uh, try not to think of the crushing weight of all the millions of people who will be watching tonight. You know, it could be movie stars, ex-presidents, uh, Mick Jaggers, you know, all this, that, that. Does that, he that.
2: specifically name Mick Jagger? He specifically names Mick Because that's Jagger. especially funny, given that he's in the United States. It's like, you know, you were on the BBC. There's a pretty good chance Mick Jagger, you know, he's a fellow countryman. Countrymen, so he was probably yeah. watching like the flying circus or whatever i uh, indeed he was i <laughs> believe uh, that
1: show was very popular amongst people like you know pink floyd and the beatles that's, and, right. Uh, that's Ge- right george harrison himself paid for life of brian he funded it
2: that's right so i love the idea that it's only scary if mick jagger's watching if you're on american tv this is the woman i met on my trip in salisbury cathedral who was a Briton who was telling me that she just visited her daughter or son in the united states for the first time and she's like oh, New York City, Times Square. It's like you're on a movie set. And I was like we're standing in Salisbury Cathedral. The Magna Carta from 1215 is five feet away. What are you talking about? You went to the M&M store? Give me a break. And there is something about Saturday (laughs) Night Live that like (laughs) positions itself as the
1: center of the universe, right? Live from New York, it's Saturday night. We're at at Rockefeller Plaza. Uh, If you're hosting the show, you are the king of popular culture for that night. King for a night. You know, you're you're, you're reading this book. uh, And over the course of these three volumes, he kind of gets gradually more and more famous. Like at the start he's like a gigging journeyman writer at the bbc and then as the diaries go on it's like oh apparently elvis presley is a fan you know johnny cash is a fan or it's like you're at the 90s it's like oh here i am at lunch with prince charles and this happens very (laughs) gradually over the course of it but yeah, when he's on SNL, the weight of the center of American showbiz is is so enormous. And you do think like, you know, when they're writing about the BBC, it's as if he's on a public access channel. It's the BBC. Well, that's the thing. Like when Monty Python's <laughs> Flying Circus was at its height, it was getting like nine or 10 million people watching it, which is like 10% of the country.
2: Okay. <laughs> this is so funny. Like, because in modernity, we experience, you know, the historical process faster than people did in previous epochs. It's like Britain was the biggest empire in the world like the the biggest empire of all time less than 100 years before michael palin was born and like he's already moved on and he's like oh my god like the united states snl it would be like if people in like fifth century italy were like oh my god i thought i'd made it then I found out that my Sophocles adaptation was the toast of Constantinople. Can you believe it?
1: But during this section of the book, you can sense a certain I don't know if rift is the right word, but a certain tension developing between him and Eric Idle, who is the most America obsessed member of the group, the yes. most showbiz obsessed. He was the one who was friends with David <laughs> Bowie, George Harrison, Pink <laughs> Floyd. He was the one who hosted SNL First and had a TV special that Lauren Michaels produced, The Ruttles. Uh the weak palin hosts, Lauren Michaels says, you know, I'd love to do a show with you on NBC kind of like the Ruttles you know I'll produce it you write and star in it we'll sell it all over the world and Palin is like incredibly flattered and he's very excited it's like (laughs) oh Lauren Michaels wants to make a show with me and Idol is on the phone saying you gotta do this this is huge it's the next step it's America Uh, but there's a a passage I think to Palin's credit where he says something like but but I I think Idol is too into this America thing I think that way lies artistic compromise and getting too caught up in the shine any surface of things now, it is interesting that Palin, who had this opportunity, had this, like, big brass ring in front of him, and, like, he basically did decide to just, like, stay in London and become a British national treasure at the right. end of the day. But I don't know, it was fascinating uh, just to read that passage about how, like, God, being on American TV, te- d- doesn't matter if you're, like, the most famous guy in Britain, you know, there's something about being on American TV. It's about <laughs> being in Times Square uh, with, uh, and, you know, he talks about that week, it's like Andy Warhol held a party for him, you know, Truman Capote was there, and it's, like he writes attraction repulsion way of like uh
2: all these shallow, glamorous people, but you know he Kind of loves loves it too, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. And then they then they went over to check out the Friends apartment. Yeah, it's funny uh, when I was in Britain recently. You know, one of my kind of perennial companions on an airplane, because I, I just get so bored on and physically uncomfortable in airplanes, is the old Ricky Gervais XFM show. So this was before Gervais, and Mar- as while they're making the Office, and Carl Pilkington is on it, but it was before they did the famous podcast, and it was before that whole thing had become shtick. And it's really, really funny. It was so funny because they were writing The Office at that time in which they would take three months to write 25 minutes of script, and then they would just go on the radio each weekend with no preparation. And increasingly, their producer and his incredibly weird way of uh, seeing the world just became the show, and they couldn't do without him. But one of the things they would do uh, constantly was just make fun of their like tin pot radio station they were on, make fun of their show, constantly bring to attention how shitty a job they were doing and how prep they did Carl Pilkington would play the one take ad reads that Gervais had done over the weekend that he was like embarrassed to put on the radio Pilkington that is Gervais obviously couldn't care less but they had a bit over and over again where they would give out prizes and they'd be like the shittiest prizes ever it would be like a copy of K-Pax on VHS signed by Kevin Spacey or actually if you look at the Wikipedia page for the uh, Joaquin Phoenix joint not critically acclaimed uh, the fireman movie what's called ladder 49 there is a section on that about how it became a bit on. The Ricky Gervais show to make fun of how they had to give it away. And I'm forgetting what the movie was, but one time, Merchant brought up the fact that whatever shitty thing they were giving away was billed on the cover as having a special appearance by Eric Idle. (laughs) And they all had a big laugh.
1: <laughs> at oh, so much better than special appearance by Ricky Gervais these days, well, huh? right?
2: Right, because this is the thing. I it's mean, a life cycle of things, you, isn't it? You listen well for for a certain kind of uh, titanically successful British comedian, and, and you know, I think probably applies to other kinds of British celebrities as well. This is what happens. I think it was in twenty twenty one. We did an episode on our Patreon. I don't remember the number, but it was called Out of England, which was a riff on the name of a Ricky Gervais stand up special. You know, if you listen to really old broadcasts uh, from Gervais, you can tell that from quite a young age, he was someone who thought, I mean, by his own admission, he thought everything American was cool. And it really does seem like he's someone who kind of made it in America and was kind of ruined by that experience. I don't think he's done anything as good as the stuff he did in Britain uh, since he made the transition to being a US celebrity. And what's so funny about listening to those XFM shows is, I mean, particularly after the first season, or what's often called the first season. Season there were some broadcast Merchant and Gervais did in the '90s when they were younger and they actually got fired. <laughs> Those have been kind of pieced together from like little bits of tape and stuff. Only aficionados like myself have ever gone back and listened to them. But on what's usually called the first season. You know, they'd done season one of The Office. They were starting to be known. And even by, you know, I guess the sort of fourth uh, series of that show, uh, by that point, they were doing extras. And it's interesting because you do get to follow them as they're kind of getting more famous and as they sort of get to the point where, you know, Ricky in particular is just being recognized everywhere he goes and having sometimes sweet and sometimes, you know, kind of odd interactions with fans that make him uh, quite uncomfortable. And he really does come across in many ways like a fairly humble man who's actually pretty well adjusted and is able to become kind of absurdly famous in Britain which is really no small thing and you know its culture gets exported around the world you know the BBC World Service is something that tens of millions of people at least listen to and yet there was something about the experience of going to the United States I don't know he only got more successful and uh, more famous and in my opinion uh, I think he got uh, steadily less good to say nothing of some of the political opinions he's developed over the last few years
1: but you know you can't deny that he's right that God is a right bloody git. <laughs> well, perhaps time to shift over to the movie. Luke and I uh, both write sometimes.
2: It's been known to happen. We've both
1: stared at the blank page and wondered where should this project start? What should be the boundaries? Should it begin at the dawn of
2: civilization? Uh, is it time to get a muffin? Something, Something Will and I have come back to, just a perennial theme in our conversations going back probably 10 years now, is that there's an experience that we've both repeatedly had where, yeah, you're staring at a blank page and and both of us have written many articles before, but you're staring at that page and you feel as if you're writing an article for the first time again, and you're having to yet again undergo this kind of Promethean act of creation. And I mean, this is something you can feel even when you're writing about something that's kind of dumb or, or simple or relatively straightforward to treat. It's just part of the pathology of being a writer, I think.
1: Well, I have two kinds of experiences. One is exactly what you're describing, where it feels like writing something for the first time, and the other is, and I haven't had to do this as much lately, but when you're doing uh, hack work, you know, when you're doing the bill paying work. Oh, I wouldn't know anything about yeah, that. Yeah, you wouldn't know anything Never about done that. It. You know, life is long. That's that's what I'll say to that. Uh, and pretty soon somebody's going to come to you and say, would you like to write an advertorial for 2,000 big ones? And you're going to say, 2,000 big ones? That can pay my rent for a month. Not in this city, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. That's when you revert to your inner Donald Kaufman and you say, and you, say you know, I love structure. I love intro paragraphs first interview quote, (laughs) context paragraph, paragraph that add some interesting miscellaneous information and then conclusion paragraph <laughs> and if you look at some of my hack
2: work over the years you will see this beautiful rhythmic structure that is all the same <laughs> well unlike me you actually went to j school and they teach you that kind of thing don't they
1: they do teach you at j school but i actually think i kind of they teach
2: it. you to think in graphs and I think, they teach you to approach okay you got a 700 word report to write so here's how you build it in a modular way
1: i grew up reading entertainment weekly so i i
2: <laughs> got it in my bones <laughs> early very
1: young yeah, I yeah. understood what an article looks like <laughs> anyway we are going to be talking about the 2002 film adaptation
3: to begin coffee would help me think coffee and a muffin I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday and I I was wondering oh I'm sorry so I'll just be right back with your pie then drum roll please i'm gonna be a screenwriter like you i'm putting in a chase sequence so the killer flees on horseback cops after them on a motorcycle and it's like a battle between motors and horses like technology versus horse susan we would really
2: like to option this
0: you want to make it into a movie i want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately
2: Chef's Kiss. I knew nothing about this movie when Will suggested it. It did not take him long to sell me on it. This is some of the most fun I've had watching something for this podcast in quite a while. Uh, this movie is absolutely ingenious. It's one of the best things I've ever seen about the experience of being a writer. It's funny. It's got one of the wildest structures or kind of anti structures of anything I've ever seen and Nicolas Cage is amazing.
1: I saw this movie towards the very end of its theatrical run because my dad saw it on a plane. He landed and said almost immediately I was maybe 13 or 14 at the time, he said like, you really have to see
2: this movie. You would, oh wow, you would, that's you so would, nice.
1: You would love this movie. In fact, he took me to the the movie theater and we went to see it together. he saw it a second time and yeah that's
2: really kind you know uh, i wish i'd met your dad
1: yeah I know, I know and he was right i'm sure i mean 14 year old me it completely blew my mind yeah. just twofold the experiments that it was doing with structure and you know what it was saying about hollywood screenplays insane but then also like the depiction of a writer which at 14 was very much like kind of what i wanted to be <laughs> like you yeah. know that yeah i'm kind of like charlie cough and i'm an <laughs> artist unlike donald who's a hack. But maybe maybe we all have the inner hack in us oh yeah and then there are these things called screenwriting gurus and screenwriting classes and the three-act structure this is a
2: craft and, and you can learn but, it but
1: but also that's for posers that's for people who aren't like genius thinkers, that's right. like me, me
2: for me there's just a wellspring of inspiration that's organic and, and i don't and, have and to i don't need I, any of that shit. i
1: haven't even i haven't even learned the form yet but i'm gonna break it down
2: <laughs> <laughs> before we get too excited here we should uh, explain to people what adaptation is because it is a unique film right
1: and if you haven't seen it i'm sure many of you have but if you watch it but if you haven't seen it it's well worth watching you'll have a very entertaining two hours it is ostensibly an adaptation of susan orlean's book the orchid thief which was originally a new yorker article susan orlean was and i believe still is a staff writer at the new yorker she's played in this film by meryl streep both the book and the article are about a man named John Laroche played by Chris Cooper who was an eccentric ecologist fellow who uh, had a particular niche where he would go with indigenous people in Florida to the protected and preserved like wetland and swamp areas and help them identify and steal rare plants and flowers including orchids because indigenous people thanks to several court rulings are allowed to do that or were allowed to do that at least in Florida protected territory uh, he was the one, you know, cutting the branch off, uh, but he was the one who could guide them. So when she wrote this article and book, he was kind of fighting various court cases asserting his right to do this. Uh, And she wrote this book, which of course, I haven't read that as Charlie Kaufman says in the film is uh, flowery New Yorker shit, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of stuff about uh, flowers, and
2: maybe the orchid is is kind of a metaphor. (laughs) Um,
1: I got to tell you, maybe the book's wonderful. Sounds a little mid to me listening to it here. Well,
2: certainly when we're introduced to it in the film, it does seem like, you know, it's initially presented anyway as that kind of classic long form uh, magazine article that is, you know, distinctly middle brow that has a certain kind of literary pretension is, is maybe even written in, a, in an engaging and crisp kind of prose that feels provocative without necessarily being so that perhaps begins to present its story in very straightforward terms and then slowly builds a metaphor around itself and maybe starts to insert the writer's own autobiography. In some way, and of course, in the case of you know the orchid, the orchid is something rare. It's asexual, so it reproduces itself, and so obviously, you know, it's the kind of thing that uh, is very pregnant with metaphor, especially for the purposes of something like that. Now, there are a lot of layers to this film, and I think it's very much an open question how we're actually supposed to think about the metaphor of the orchid, because in the end, this film becomes a commentary on itself, and it becomes about Charlie Kaufman to is a character in the film, played by Nicolas Cage, and is also the film's actual real-life screenwriter. The film becomes about his writer's block, his inability to find a story in the book that isn't hack. You know, he doesn't want to do the hack things that the suits are asking him to, where they're like, insert a romantic plot or something like that. And the way he solves it in the end is partly by making a film that dramatizes his own writer's block and kind of mythologizes it. So the film is very layered and uh, ambiguous in that way. So,
1: for most of the first half of the movie, it has a parallel structure of, on the one hand, a straight adaptation of The Orchid Thief, charting the subject-journalist relationship between La Roche and Orlean.
3: Is that every one of these flowers has a specific relationship with the insect that pollinates it. There's a certain orchid looks exactly like a certain insect, so the insect is drawn to this flower. It's double, it's soulmate, and wants nothing more than to make love to it. After, the insect flies off, spots another soulmate flower and makes love to it, thus pollinating
2: it. Chris Cooper, by the way, very good in this film. I would say almost as good as he was in a little film called uh, Irresistible by Jon Stewart, which is probably how he'll be remembered.
1: Yeah, you're the only person who remembers that he was in that, what his role was, uh,
2: what even that movie was. Uh, without Googling all of you at home, skill-testing question, explain the plot of that movie without looking it up.
1: So yeah, the first half of the movie is partly about that, and partly three years later, Charlie Kaufman, the actual writer of Being John Malkovich and Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and other films played by Nicolas cage trying to adapt to this book into a movie that is pure and true and does not conform to hollywood cliches now in the opening credits of this film you will see that the screenplay is credited to charlie kaufman and donald kaufman Donald Kaufman does not actually exist. I believe he is the only fictional character nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, (laughs) He is Charlie Kaufman's fictional twin brother, also played by Nicolas Cage in this film.
2: I do want to pause for a second here to just talk about Nicolas Cage's acting a little bit. um, Because as we've discussed before, Will, you know, he's become something of a meme. You know, Nicolas Cage, he's epic, folks. uh, Have you heard this? Uh, But he really is good. And You were recalling to me that uh, comment that Ethan Hawke made that's, I think, really on point where he said, you know, Nicolas Cage is the only person to do something new with acting since Brando. You know, everybody is working within the Method School now. Nicolas Cage does not do that. And you can really see that in this film. And the effect is so good because he plays these two brothers and they're so different. They are completely different characters. And yet they
1: look the same. They
2: look exactly the same, except, you know, donald is a little plumper and his hairline is worse but in spite of those things he's more charismatic he has a more satisfying life he's a lot happier his sex life is much better etc nicholas cage is obviously known for like the
1: big moments you know not the bees you know the, the freak out <laughs> moments but you know like like any good actor he, he understands the value of understatement he knows that the face is a whole terrain uh and i, I and, found
2: myself looking at his face and his expression so much throughout this movie. you know just just a furrowed brow can be a completely different landscape tiny Um, little tiny little gestures that are sometimes just absolutely filled with emotion or yeah like little crinkles of the cheek that are somehow incredibly funny stuff like that
1: and for much of the movie these two characters charlie and donald kaufman these twin brothers are ideological and temperamental opposites Charlie is an artist. Donald is a hack. Donald, for the whole movie, uh, you know, wants to write a screenplay of his own, and when he does, it's a really crass and formulaic-sounding thriller, a very gimmicky uh, multiple-personality-disorder thriller called The Three that, of course, ends up becoming a hot-ticket item around town.
3: Okay, there's a serial killer, right? Well, no, wait. And he's being hunted by a cop, and he's taunting the cop, right? Sending clues who his next victim is. He's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement. So the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity and in the process falls in love with her, even though he's never even met her. She becomes like, like, like the unattainable, like, like the holy grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up?! The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean, how how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and and working in a police station at the same time.
2: The crux of the chase scene is that there's a chase happening where it's between a car and a horse and it's supposed to it's some supposed to be some bullshit heavy-handed thing about like, you know, a chase scene, it's a battle between, you know, man and machine or something. And he's saying, how does this work because these people are ultimately the same person? So how is there a chase scene? He never explains it. It's never worked out. It's never resolved. He's a man who's absolutely obsessed with structure. He keeps talking about this guy Robert McKee, who again is a re- is a, in real life is a real screenwriter. Robert McKee, who we meet later in the movie is played by the wonderful Brian Cox. And for the first part of the movie, every time McKee is referred to, it's just stuff like, uh, "Oh, you should come to his screenwriting class. You know, I learned that we all write in a genre, you know, what's yours? Mine's thriller." And it's just like he's being taught screenwriting in such a formulaic way and he approaches it like that. I mean, it, he's basically gone and he's met a guru who's given him his astrological sign like that's what's going on here i
1: I mean what's funny though is the donald character is so vulgar in a lot of ways but there's a kernel of truth to what he's saying Where like yeah genre is important just as any sort of structure is important uh the scene that i think i used to sell you on watching this movie which is one that's been ringing in my head a lot lately is the couple of times in the movie, including at the beginning, when we see the dawn of time.
2: Yes, uh, that's how the film opens.
1: With the primordial ooze. Yeah, yeah. And with an ape turning into a man. And, you know, Charlie, played by Cage, says, let's start at the beginning. And I've been feeling this quite strongly lately, because I know that we've both worked on big projects. And when you're working on a big project, there is the thought of, well, how big is it? Like oh where does God. this subject begin, and does do it? Be, you have no does idea. it be... I'm working on something right now where, where without talking too much about it, it's like I th- I thought about well, I'll have to bring in the O'Tour theory at some point, hmm. and then I think, well, does that mean Andrew Saras or does that mean the French critics? And then you start thinking like, oh, but do we then go back to uh, the train moving towards the camera, the, right. the Lumiere shot? Yeah, and you got to then... talk
2: about the Lumiere brothers, and then it's like, well, what about the whole history of visual art? What about and... what about
1: the first time that a... a caveman painted on a
2: wall? What about the ab- Abstract idea of an image representing something. I actually need to master the entire field of hermeneutics before I can write this fifteen hundred word article. Yeah, for me working with Ed, it was like, okay, well, we've talked about social democracy in the twentieth century. Uh, maybe we should talk about it social democracy in the nineteenth century. But then what about the radical liberalism that was kind of an inchoate version of it at the end of the eighteenth century? And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, to say nothing of how it gets bigger when you're just talking about things that are kind of in the now or are recent. What about this particular obscure debate? Well, we can't let that pass. Oh, I thought this flourish that you used in a speech that no one's read since it was given in 1971 is actually interesting, because it's different how you might formulate the same idea in any other instance that we've encountered before. I think again and again about uh, what Ron Giessen said, who if people haven't heard the solo Patreon episode I did in the summer, is a wonderful musician and artist who worked with Pink Floyd on the Adam Hart mother suite. And he articulated something very simply, and I've come back to what he said again, And again, he just said, art needs a border. And I actually don't think, even though I guess in order to create anything, you have to know that in some way, it is so completely and utterly true. And I think it's one of the most daunting things about writing, because particularly if you care about something, there's a mania that can kind of take hold, a mania to always be magisterial. You have to develop almost a kind of perverse relationship to your subject. You have to obsess over what to other people might be the most banal or mundane or granular details. And you have to do that in many cases to really tell a story properly to develop the kind of emotional investment and intellectual investment that you need to have in something to really carry it through, especially if it's a big project. And at the same time, all those things can actually undo a big project. Actually, if I can take us on one more digression here, I was recently uh, listening to a series of lectures that the writer Hilary Mantel gave for the BBC before her death. If people aren't familiar with Hilary Mantel, she wrote these uh, great expansive historical novels that were uh, exquisitely well-researched. I'm reading one right now. She wrote about the French Revolution. And she spends one of the lectures the whole time talking about a woman who, uh, I'm forgetting her name now, I should really know this, but she was a playwright who in the 1920s decided that she wanted to write a play about the French Revolution. And she did successfully write a play about Georges Danton, uh, but then she realized in the act of writing about Danton that actually Danton is not uh, my muse. He's not the one I'm interested in. I have to write about Rob Speer. And this woman became so obsessed with writing this expansive play about Robespierre that was going to tell the ultimate definitive story. About Maximilian Robespierre, she never finished it. And Hilary Mantel ended up looking through her thousands of pages of notes. This woman spent years and years and she was so crippled by her own perfectionism and her own over-identification and maniacal obsession with the subject that she couldn't actually carry it through. So these are just some of the dilemmas of writing that are both what uh, propels it and can undo it as well.
1: I think you might enjoy a movie that Charlie Kaufman, the real Charlie Kaufman, made a couple years after this. He directed it called Synecdoche, New York, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, where he plays a playwright who gets a MacArthur genius grant and decides to create a play that will encompass all of life all of existence (laughs) it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger (laughs) until he has warehouses and then warehouses (laughs) within warehouses and you know it's kind of a surreal comedy about the impossibility of art ever encompassing everything (laughs) so that's the first half or maybe two-thirds of the movie and then in desperation Charlie follows Donald's advice and goes to a Robert McKee screenwriting seminar. And again, Robert McKee is a real person whose book story is, for many people, a sort of industry gold standard for how you structure a screenplay. And he really did seminars like this. And Brian Cox plays him in the film. And I think it's very interesting that Brian Cox does not play him nor does charlie kaufman write him as a cynic that's right he is an ideologue he truly truly believes in what he preaches and there's a notable scene maybe the notable scene in this movie where uh, charlie in the audience asks well i want to make a movie where nothing really happens where people don't learn huge lessons or have huge epiphanies and uh, it's more like real life
3: what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens where people don't change they don't have any epiphanies They struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved. More reflection of the real world.
0: The real world? Yes, sir. The real fucking world. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's Genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it.
3: Okay, thanks.
1: It's funny because McKee, because he is the screenwriting guru and he does these seminars where it's like how to sell your $100 million screenplay or whatever, he's easy to dismiss. But like in that monologue, he's not exactly wrong.
2: When he's teaching the class, I mean, there is this pretty funny scene where he dresses down Nicolas Cage in front of the whole class. But then when Cage's Kaufman approaches him after the class... He's actually quite warm and encouraging and he takes Well actually there's
1: there's a brief moment where and first introduces himself. He said, I'm I'm the guy who says that nothing happens in life and McKee sort of rolls his eyes and says, Right, okay. Like he's you can tell he's genuinely offended by the thing that Kaufman yes. said. Yes. It goes against his ideals, mm-hmm. actually.
2: Yeah. But then, you know, if you really think about the things he's saying in the class and the thing he says to Charlie when they go to the bar after in the class, one of his main arguments, he says, you cannot have a protagonist without desire. It doesn't make any sense. And okay, uh, one could draw conclusions from that. And lots of people have. Lots of people have taken up that idea or something like it. And they've written narratives that are very artificial, perhaps have great entertainment value or commercial valence, but aren't very good art. Nonetheless, that is kind of unavoidable if you're writing a fictional narrative. It is very hard to have a protagonist without desire. What is the protagonist driving towards? You can say arcs are artificial because life is more ambiguous. But as we've been discussing, art needs a border. And that's one of the ways that you impose a border on a narrative. And when he's encouraging Charlie at the bar, he says, your characters must change and the change must come from them. Do that and you'll be fine. And again... Possible to draw hack conclusions from that and also possible to take it up and run with it in a way that's incredibly helpful.
1: So I find the last act of this movie brilliantly executed and also troubling. And I'd like to maybe work through this because the last third of the movie seems to me like the real Charlie Kaufman kind of waving the white flag and saying, I can't adapt the Orchid Thief.
2: The movie begins to fold in on itself in quite an interesting way, and then it folds in on itself a second time. I don't think I've ever seen it in another movie. Quite like this.
1: So Charlie has gone to New York to meet with Susan Orlean. He can't work up the courage, so he <laughs> invites his brother Donald over. Donald reads the screenplay, and from that point on, essentially Donald Kaufman takes over the screenplay, uh, and that's not announced but from that point on, the movie becomes, for want of a better word, hacky. Uh, (laughs) A a new thread develops where, and this is absolute spoiler territory, uh, Susan Orlean, it turns out, is having an affair with LaRoche. And (laughs) not only that, they are in cahoots in a drug trafficking enterprise. (laughs) She goes down to Florida, and you know they have sex, and they do drugs, and uh, they do all these illegal activities. And much of the last third is the two Kaufman brothers going down like a heist to try To, to try to catch them. <laughs> and in fact, what happens goes against McKee's advice because he says something like, Don't do a Deus Ex machina. Well, there is a Deus Ex machina. Right. LaRoche is killed by a gator, you know, <laughs> right when he's about to kill Charlie. Right. He says the change has to come from them. Well, it doesn't really. It's like brutally imposed on these characters. They act completely out of character from what they did for the first two thirds. And Donald himself dies in a car accident, you know, heroically dies in the yeah. middle of all this. And
2: then and then there's a perfectly formulaic death scene where Donald's on the ground and his eyes start to close and Charlie starts singing uh the song Happy Together, which is a song. Which early in the film <laughs> Donald
1: suggests would make for a great musical number in a movie. In a thriller. Because because yeah, you'd think yeah. a thriller's not supposed yeah, to have but music, what a, but yeah. Casablanca had a song. Yeah,
2: and then and then Donald's eyes start to open again for just a second. One last whiff of human connection before or he finally vanishes into the oblivion of death. And it's totally hack, but it actually kind of works. The film has a number of moments like that that actually grab you pretty strongly. It's directed by Spike Jones, and it's done very, very well. There's an earlier scene in the movie where, if you remember, the Chris Cooper character, LaRoche, is recounting to Susan Orlean his tragic backstory. And there's a scene where you see the car crash in which, you know, he backed a car into the road and killed his mother and uncle and put his wife into a coma and got seriously injured himself. And there's a sequence where he's being sort of wheeled off on a gurney and the way it's shot is like exactly how someone remembers a really traumatic incident just these little snippets of like horrifying things that you see when you're barely conscious and it's the kind of thing that actually you could imagine somebody might Produce a sequence like this after taking a screenwriting course, but you know what? It's pretty good, and there's a lot of stuff in this movie like that, including in the final act. Even though the final act is completely wild and crazy, and I would say a bit hack too. Yes, absolutely. It does the things that McKee
1: says to avoid if (laughs) if you don't want to be a hack. The,
2: the, The piece of advice that he gets from Donald, where they're cowering in the woods, you know, trying to avoid being shot, is Donald says to him, "You are what you love, not what loves you." Yeah, it's very much kind of a piece of, you know, fortune cookie wisdom or something, but it also is the thing that allows, it kind of sets Charlie free because the thing that allows Donald to be happy and make these, you know, hack scripts that bring him great success is that he's completely unbothered in some way by what other people think. He's not worried about other people thinking this guy is a hack, whereas Charlie is worried about that in a way that completely cripples him. There's a further autobiographical element that I want to bring in here, which is, of course, the the real Charlie Kaufman did write being John Malkovich. And there's some what appears to be actual footage from the set of that. And if anyone's seen being John Malkovich, which if you haven't, you should see it. It's great. We'll do an episode on it sometime. Another crazy sort of meta movie. And there's a scene in adaptation where Charlie is meeting with one of these hack suits who keeps making very off-color comments about various women that he can see through the glass. He makes some comment as Charlie's explaining, I I can't adapt this, there's not enough here, I don't want to, I can't just write something crazy and the suit says to him, Charlie, you know, writing crazy stuff, that's what you do so well and I love this detail because it's an insight into the fact that uh, Charlie Kaufman is clearly bothered by the success of being John Malkovich in some way. I'm sure he was happy it was so successful. It's a very good film but also in the scene he seems to be telling us that, you know, he felt like he was being typecast as the guy who just writes kind of crazy wild. And that doing meta movies is like a shtick. That's right. And one of the ways he sort of uh, worked out that particular Insecurities by writing another even crazier meta movie. That's great.
1: Well, you know what? What troubles me about the end of the film is that early in the film, several times in the film, Charlie says, "Why can't somebody just make a movie about flowers?" And the conclusion at the end appears to be, "You can't." Right. The conclusion seems to be actually you've got to have some kind of hollywood ending some right. kind of story
2: well in the film and this film does have a hollywood ending doesn't it because there's a character played by cara seymour who at the beginning of the movie you know she's clearly interested in charlie but he just he does not know how to talk to people like he's very uncomfortable with women but he i mean he doesn't even know how to talk to his own brother either he's just crippled not just as a writer but just interpersonally he has so many insecurities and so he just he can't seal the deal even with this woman who's clearly interested in him and at the end of adaptation you know major spoiler alert here there's this perfect hollywood ending where he's able to get over himself he's able to confess his love to her she's just been around europe with her new you know husband or something and she's sort of saying you know i I can't i have to go and then she turns to him and she says you know i i love you too And then he does a voiceover, breaking another one of Brian Cox's rules, never do a voiceover. And as you see him driving home, you hear his voiceover say, I know how to finish the script now. After his lunch with Amelia, Kaufman drives home and he understands how to finish his script. You know, the end. But, you know,
1: I would contend that it is possible to make a movie about flowers. I would contend that it is possible to make a sort of lyrical, beautiful movie that doesn't conform to the sort of uh, Hollywood ending model. And it's been done a lot in, you know, the experimental film realm. You know, I think of uh, now a few weeks ago, you may recall that I brought up the example of Jonas Mikas because of his uh, ties to uh, uh, certain elements in Lithuania before the Soviets came in. Right. But I will say that in the 70s, he made some lovely experimental films. Right. One in particular Called Walden, Diaries, Notes, and Sketches, which is a sort of kaleidoscopic view of the 1960s that he made with his little Super 8 Bolex camera. And uh, it's a remarkable film because, you know, there will be a moment where he's at the bed in with John and Yoko, right. you know, in their Montreal hotel. And then the next moment, he's on the bus. And then the next moment, he's following chipmunks and squirrels in Central Park. And the next moment, oh, Andy Warhol is hosting a party for the Velvet Underground. Right. And then the next yeah. moment, oh, we're ice skating in Central Park. <laughs> and, there's a moment towards the end of that film where you're seeing some particularly prosaic images, right? And you hear his narration say, to the effect of these are just some images, you know, in his heavy Lithuanian right. accent, right. images for me and some friends of mine. And you can look at them if you want and just enjoy the images. I hear that and I'm, I'm hooting and hollering. It's like, yeah, just show me some fucking images, you know? <laughs> and like, it's a beautiful movie that doesn't conform to any of that. Right. But the thing is, it wasn't made in Hollywood. Right. It was made completely outside the system, and, right. it, and it was made for, for zero dollars. And essentially, at the end of adaptation, there's a sort of thought that like, look, we're still going to work within the system here. Maybe I'm innovative within the system, but at the end of the day, I, I can't adapt The Orchid Thief. Now, there's some ambiguity, too, because to what extent are we supposed to regard The Orchid Thief as something worthy of that kind of treatment?
2: I'm not sure. They have actually, there's a bunch I want to say on this. I think it's very interesting, the status of The Orchid Thief story and the Susan Orlean character within this movie, because as we said off the top of the conversation, when she's first introduced, it does seem like, you know, she's kind of a hack writer and the story she's doing is, yeah, decidedly mid. But I don't know, as you learn more about it, you know, before the kind of final act where the film collapses in on it. Itself, and it seems to be happening, you know, purely within Charlie's mind. She develops some more. I mean, this is definitely one of the more interesting uh, characters I've seen rendered by Meryl Streep. She actually seems quite frustrated and trying to develop the story. There's a lot of stuff where you see, yeah, kind of back in time, you know, she's working on the story. She's doing field work and she's both, you know, sitting and, and trying to write it. And she actually has a lot of kind of inner struggles herself. She's struggling because she can't develop the same interest in orchids as LaRoche, her subject. She's struggling because she actually, as she says, she hasn't figured out how to care about anything as much as people care about these orchids. And, you know, there's one scene where we see her at dinner with some of, I don't know, her like hack bourgeois Upper East Side friends, and they're having just the most vapid conversation ever. And she's kind of making fun of LaRoche a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. But then when she goes off and has a private moment, it seems like that's actually not really how she feels. She wants to find a way into the story, and she can't. And she, in that moment, I think she's reflecting on, well, you know, my life is kind of vapid, and I'm trading in these kind of very rote discussions with my friends where we all know the parts that we're playing. We all have the perfect arsenal of middle-brow references to bring to bear on a conversation like this, and just none of it means anything. It's also heavily implied that what she ultimately does with the story and with the book, which again, like a lot of the things that the Brian Cox character says, could be hack, or actually ultimately might be useful and might even be prefer- found, there's a particular rare orchid, the ghost orchid, that she's never able to see. And it seems that the way she resolves the story is very similar to how Charlie Kaufman, the character, resolves his dilemma in the movie. Because she writes about this rare orchid as a kind of absence. And in doing so, writes something that I think we're supposed to take as ultimately effective and profound, which is nevertheless built on her own inability to actually conquer her subject. And in some ways, her own inability to impose a border on it. And so I think that as with Donald Kaufman, as with the Brian Cox screenwriter character, Susan Orleans arc in this movie is very, very similar. Uh, She's introduced as a hack. And I think the film gives her a lot more depth. And I'm very pleased that it does. It's the kind of thing that makes this film not just funny, but I think very special and, and kind of poignant as well. I actually think, well, that I may have a, a somewhat less cynical reading of the film than you. I do think it raises a lot of things that you've talked about. And in pitching it to me, you suggested that its ultimate conclusion was kind of, you know, you can't fight City Hall. If you want to be an artist, you have to make these kind of compromises, both with the craft itself and also commercially. One thing we haven't talked about at all are these kind of, uh, I don't know what to call them, wet dream sequences uh, that appear throughout the film. There are various moments when
1: Charlie fantasizes himself having sexual encounters with the various female characters, and they initially present as real, but then you find out they're his masturbatory fantasies.
2: Yeah, he's just awake in bed, and they're the product of a fantasy world that is actually quite abject and pathetic, because in real life, he's somebody who's just completely unable to interact with, uh, well, women or anyone, any other human being, regardless of gender. But I think the film is also sort of using sex as some kind of metaphor for writing. And here, I think it's it's using the orchid and the symbolism associated with that in actually a fairly earnest way, because again, the orchid is asexual. And Charlie is fundamentally asexual as well, not only in the literal sense, but he's asexual as a writer because he doesn't want to put his writing in conversation with anything else. He doesn't want to put it in conversation with the real world because he doesn't want to be tainted by it. And it seems to me that if there's a non-cynical reading of the film, what it may really be saying at the end is that it's not an act of surrender to impose a border on your art. It's necessary. And imposing a border means having some kind of dialogue with the world around you and with your audience. You know, that is absolutely necessary in the act of screenwriting. I don't know if that all made sense, but that was my less cynical reading of the movie.
3: It is a journey of evolution, adaptation, the journey we all take, a journey that unites each and every one of us. Darwin writes that we all come from the very first single-cell organism, yet here I am, and there's LaRoche, there's Orlean, and there's the ghost orchid. All trapped in our own bodies in moments in history.
1: Before we go, Donald Kaufman in this movie, disguised as his brother, asks Susan Arlene, if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? It's a hack question, uh, befitting a hack character, uh, but I'm going to ask it to you. If you could have dinner with any historical person who would it be
2: i don't know how to answer both because it's a hack question but also because i'm not sure what the terms are the terms are whatever you want them to be okay well Uh, you can go back in time because they can come to your time yours was that you want to talk to charlie chaplin yes but but in 1917 exactly
1: i want to talk to chaplin because there's lots of interview footage of him in like the 50s the 60s the 70s Uh, But uh, in 1917, he's been making movies for three years, he's starting to hit his stride, you know, he's the first superstar, and he's figuring out what his voice is. In 1917, he's like perfected the two reel comedy format. And he's thinking like, well, there's got to be something bigger than this. And that's eventually what leads you to the gold rush, City Lights, you know, all those movies. And it's also at a moment when the American film industry itself is just barely out of the Nickelodeons. Uh, so I would like to talk to him in that moment. And then I would step on a bug and ruin all of history. <laughs>
2: yeah history would be different and somehow the michael and us podcast would still exist
1: i'd say to him charlie you see those gears over there wouldn't it be fucked if somebody was like winding through those (laughs) gears and wait till i tell you about this guy this painter in germany (laughs) you're going to be hearing about pretty soon
2: who do you you want to meet? I don't see, I just wouldn't approach the, I don't know, I don't have a name for you. Not even a hack answer? I I just, uh, for me though, the most interesting question here is not the name, it's what the terms are because I would not approach it in the way you did. I don't know why you would want to meet Charlie Chaplin and then impose a constraint, like oh, I want to talk to him only in 1917. Because that's the version of him that we don't see as much. But what I'm saying is, what if you could meet Charlie Chaplin, and I don't know, maybe he appears to you like Charlie Chaplin looked in 1917, but he has the knowledge, like he has a magisterial knowledge. He's Charlie Chaplin outside of time. And you can just talk to him about anything. And he has the collected memories of Charlie Chaplin. Wouldn't you rather do that? Because if I was meeting historical figure, if I could actually do this, I think I would approach it instrumentally, you know? If to I, extract
1: I, as much knowledge as you can.
2: That's right. It's like, I wouldn't say, oh, I want to meet Leo Tolstoy in the 1860s when, it, you know, there's this incredible period of ferment going on and he's working on some of his best known stuff. I want to meet Leo Tolstoy with the total knowledge of Leo Tolstoy because yeah. I want the full journey and I want to learn everything I can from that.
1: Okay, so with these terms, then I would want to meet Socrates because uh, we know very little about him except what his disciples wrote and i want to find out what actually happened in his life what he actually believed and what wasn't kind of imposed on him later and i want to find out if he was really that chill when he drank the poison whether he was really uh having philosophical debates until he breathed his last
2: i think he'd be insufferable i think he'd just own you
1: with logic I, you want to know something i bet i know more than he does i bet I, I bet i could own him with uh uh knowing how a cell phone works <laughs> It's like, I I have more cool bon mots in a fucking day than you had your whole life, Socrates.
2: Yeah, and then he'd reply, "Uh, yeah, that's great. Well, have you considered how statecraft is like a horse and you just vanish in a puddle of smoke?
0: (laughs) Nothing much happens. The images go. No tragedy, no drama, no suspense. Just images for myself and for a few others. One doesn't have to watch, one doesn't. But if one feels so, one can just sit and watch these images, which I figure as life will continue won't be here for very long